Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Scramble through our world-class golf courses or shop your way through the square. Be one with nature as you hike or bike through our parks and trails or hunker down at one of our breweries. And when it's time to eat, be sure to bite into our eclectic food scene. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace. celebrate, but the arrest of Richard M. Allen of Delphi on two counts of murder is sure a major step in leading to the conclusion of this long-term and complex investigation. First, I'd like to speak directly to Anna, Mike, Becky, Kelsey, your extended families, along with the entire Delphi community that certainly has grown and now includes our nation and even many countries around the world. I am proud to report to you that today, actually last Friday, was the day. And an arrest has been made. Five weeks ago today, we sat down and delivered an on-the-fly update on the Delphi murder case. And that was when Indiana State Police Superintendent Doug Carter, Carroll County Sheriff Tobe Lesenby, who is now the outgoing sheriff, and Carroll County Prosecutor Nicholas McLeland had a scheduled press conference. This was on Monday, October 31st, better known as Halloween, and we did... I wouldn't say an emergency podcast here, Captain, because we knew that we likely would be doing it, but it was rather different than our normal setup, as normally we are coming to you from our garage studio. But on that day, on that Halloween, we were coming to you from two very different locations. I was in a hotel room in Cleveland, Ohio, and you were out of the country. So we were watching and waiting for that press conference, as it was announced earlier the previous week, they went forward with the press conference and then we delivered on what it was that they had released at that time and the information that was stated during that press conference and then our questions and feelings on that information. And of course, that press conference was all built around what happened the Friday before, which that was the arrest of Richard M. Allen, a Delphi resident charged with murder in this case, and he was arrested, officially arrested on Friday, October 28th, 2022. And one of the major things that was presented in that press conference was that they sealed the 
probable cause affidavit. Yes. And then we were told that there would be a court hearing in November, which was scheduled for November 22nd, that would be an opportunity for anybody that had an opinion, be it the people that will be eventually in court here on these charges, to state their case for why this affidavit should either be released to the public or be withheld or portions of it redacted and then released. And of course they had that court hearing. And what we learned that day was that the judge was going to take some time to decide on how to proceed. And then of course they did release this probable cause affidavit, but released a redacted version of that just last week. And we were able to get some more information about the case and about the investigation from that PCA. Yeah. Kudos to the judge for not making any rash decision. You know, what's the big deal? Take a couple days and make the correct decision for what you think is the correct decision for this case. And this case has been completely crazy because from Jump Street, this, this case became its own, you know, we have a monster that's responsible for the, the murder of two innocent little girls, but this case became a monster in its own online with all the speculation and people piling on throughout the years. And it's, it's not stopped. It's not stopped with the arrest that took place in late October and it's not stopped with the information that is coming out. So one thing that was interesting to me, captain was there was a lot of speculation about the sealing of this document in the first place. And I saw a lot of people coming out of the woodwork on Twitter, on the internet, on Reddit and such, and criticizing the investigators and and using this sealed document to back up their criticism of those investigators. And I want to be clear here. I don't do a lot of pushing back on social media, but I had to jump in when I saw this because I felt like that it was taken out of turn a little bit because really, truly what we have here is the prosecutor is the one that sealed this document that requested that it be sealed and remain sealed. Right. And the police or law enforcement, the Indiana state police, in fact, Doug Carter stating on the record before they released this document that he was fine and comfortable with the document being released, saying that he believed that the probable cause affidavit spoke for itself. Now, the criticism being that, well, law enforcement has really botched this investigation and they wanted it sealed because once it's released, it will be clear to everybody how they kind of bungled the whole investigation. Well, again, it was the prosecutor that was asking that this document remain to be sealed, not law enforcement. It was the defense and the media that was requesting that it be released to the public. The prosecutor was simply saying in this hearing, two reasons for keeping this document sealed would be one. And this is, this is what kind of shook me when the prosecutor stated that there is reason to believe that there are other actors involved. I think that was probably the most shocking thing to come out of this hearing. The other reason being that there are witnesses that are named in this PCA. I agree with the prosecutor. Their safety should be a concern. 
and keeping these witnesses safe is a really good thing. Not just in this case, it's a good thing for everyone, for all of society and all cases, past, present, and future. Agreed. And if prosecution truly believes that there was another actor or actors involved in this case, then obviously you would want to protect these eyewitnesses because now this would be evidence to them, to murderers, that these people saw something and these are people that maybe you would want to go after. So obviously we should be protecting the rights and the identity of these eyewitnesses. I feel a little weird about the wording that was used, the chosen words that were delivered that says there is reason to believe that there are other actors involved. I think we should explore that just a little bit before we move on to the affidavit itself. What could that mean? Obviously, it could mean that there could be some type of person that assisted in some form or fashion in the murders or assisted to try to cover them up. I think that this is a very blanketed statement, and at least I'm hoping that that's the situation because while reviewing everything that's come out, and again, this is so weird that we we don't know. We still There's a lot of things we still do not know in this case, but reviewing what has been released, it sounds more to me that the, I would put the probability high on, on the fact that maybe he... Richard Allen, if he is in fact guilty, and again, he's innocent until proven guilty in the court of law, but if he is in fact guilty of this double homicide, maybe he told someone or somebody covered for him in some way in previous statements to police. I I feel like this could be, uh, people shouldn't run too wild with this statement because I think it could be a very blanketed statement and it could be that somebody has some type of involvement on a much smaller scale. Yeah, or there's some reason that maybe Richard would have known that the girls were out there on the trail that day. Right, because while we have this arrest going on, everything that was focused on in this case with the Kleins, their names have not been mentioned since Richard Allen came into the fold. But simply put, the probable cause affidavit is basically a statement that they're going to be giving to a judge to make so they can make an arrest in the case. Right. And that's the thing. When when this document is released to the public, we need to keep in mind that this is not a document that is saying, here are all the reasons why Richard Allen is guilty. That's not what they're saying. They're giving just enough information. Here is some information that we find to be credible, and we believe that this credible information is pointing a finger at Richard Allen, judge, would you sign off on this and please let us go and arrest him? And we will continue to build the case after that. But we need to get him off the streets because if he is the person that committed these murders, then he's a very, very dangerous man. Yeah, because I think the first at first sight of this PCA, it seems like the evidence against Richard Allen is pretty weak. But then once you learn that they don't have to put all the evidence in the PCA and they just really need to put enough to make sure that they can make the arrest, then you go, well, really this PCA doesn't matter all that much because there could be a mountain of evidence against him. And now we have to rewind too because there's been a debate and there's going to be, continue to be a debate whether or not there's DNA in this case. 
I know that Becky, the grandmother of one of the victims, has come forward and says law enforcement did make the statement that there was DNA in this case. Well, you arrest Richard Allen on murder charges. Those are felonies. Therefore, you can get his DNA. So if they do have DNA in this case, then they can test Richard Allen's DNA because now he's charged with a felony. Yes, that is. I, I, w- I want to kind of limp in on that because I don't know the exact laws uh, in Indiana, and they do vary by state. One thing that I always found interesting in this case was that at the time of the murders, that law had not been passed where we will collect your DNA. I I don't know if it's just if you've been arrested for a, a felony or if it's been convicted of a felony. I believe that it is arrested of a felony charge in, in Indiana. But again, I don't have that information right in front of me at the moment. Well, the defense but attorney that, that I talked to stated that they would have collected his DNA because he was charged with a felony. So I'm going to go with her expert opinion. Is that an uh, Indiana attorney? Yeah. Okay. So the interesting thing here is this law was passed after Libby and Abby were killed. And I believe that this, the law being passed is directly related to the crime and the investigation of the Delphi murders case. I've always kind of felt that way. And as far as DNA goes, it's interesting that you bring that up because DNA is not mentioned in this probable cause affidavit, which there's a couple of things that are, that are very interesting to me in this affidavit. Obviously let's go through some of the highlights quickly. And I'll, I'll give like a very quick summary of the document itself, because the document for those that have not seen it, it's eight pages long and it's about seven pages of information as to why, a judge should sign off on the arrest of Richard M. Allen. Now, those highlights are the first page is really just a very good detailed description of where the crime took place and the surrounding area. So it's describing the roads and the trails and the bridge, and it's really laying out everything as it were on that day. And then it's giving the timing of some different sightings and witness statements throughout that, the course of that February 14th, 2017. The highlights would be that there was a bullet found at the crime scene, a live round, an unspent round with extraction markings on it. And that bullet they later determined belong to or came from a gun that is owned by Richard Allen. And we also learned that the video that was taken by Libby that day on the bridge, very quickly after bridge guy makes his way across the bridge and approaches the girls, we now know that one of the girls said gun to the other. So they spotted the gun in bridge guy's possession as he was getting closer to them. And that's something that we had speculated on in the past that there must've been some way we know that bridge guy was directing the girls to where he wanted to take them. Right. And now we know that a gun was used to corral them and control them and control the situation. What is not mentioned in the 
PCA is the manner of death, how the girls were killed. So some people have speculated, well, we now know that a gun was used in the crime. So maybe they were shot. And there's, again, we still don't know that information based off of what's come out. I think you could argue it either way. Personally, my feelings have always been that they probably weren't shot because of all the rumors that ever came out in this case. And there was a lot of them, but at no point do we ever have anybody saying that they were at the trails that day, which we know a bunch of people were. And nobody ever saying that they heard a gunshot or gunshots that day. Well, and just to rewind a little bit, when law enforcement for the last five to six years have said, look, we, we can't release, we can't talk about certain pieces of evidence. And one of those pieces, now we know that the girl's state gun. Well, now that you know that there is a gun involved somehow in some way in this crime, that becomes important. And then this bullet shell, this unspent bullet that's found between the girls at the murder scene becomes a pretty big piece of evidence and obviously something that they didn't feel that they could share with the public because it could hinder the investigation. Yeah, and that's always been one bit of criticism amongst others that law enforcement have had to deal with in this case. Many people saying, well, how much more of a video, how much more of audio do they have? Why won't they release that? And people had speculated maybe it was because the the girls were killed during the course of the video or the audio. Uh, what we've always been told and what we've always said here in the garage is the information that we were getting was always that there was nothing on any of the additional audio or video that's not been released to the public that would help to identify the killer. Maybe the word gun may have helped to identify the killer, but again, I think that was much better to hold that, withhold that information from the public. Then we have the, the bullet, the, the unspent bullet that is found at the crime scene where the girls were killed and where their bodies were discovered it just reminds me of some of the statements that law enforcement has stated throughout the course of this investigation. And all of them are ringing true now. You know, one statement that Tobe Lesenby said, and this is when his office was coming under criticism for the investigation dragging on for so long. You know, you got video, you got the guy on video, you got his voice on video and on audio, and yet there's no arrest. What's the problem? And Amongst other questions that he was fielding, one of the answers he gave to a question that was asked of him on in one particular interview was that our investigators will will know it when we find it. That, that there was we will know we have the right guy when we find him. And that statement sounds kind of vague and dumb, but really that statement always meant to me that there would be something that would be able to tell them. Yes, you got the right guy. Once you find the guy, yes, you got the right guy. That would it would confirm that for the investigators. And now I believe that all along he may have been talking about this bullet evidence. Well, it's very possible. And so we got the girls on video stating that there's a gun. 
So we know there's a gun. Then we see this, like we said, unspent bullet at the crime scene. So what they're able to do is they're going to search Richard Allen's property. He has multiple guns, but one of his guns is a 40 caliber gun, and that matches this bullet. Now, how do they match this bullet? Now, early on, when they would do this ballistic test on guns, it was the hammer hitting the head of the bullet. And that was the major signature. But what they also realize is if you shoot the gun, that the barrel has signature marks as well. Well, when you don't shoot the gun. Called rifling. Right. If you don't shoot the gun and you just extract the bullet. Shoot the bullet. Yeah. Then there's a marking as well. So now if you have a situation that a, a bullet is fired, you have the marking on the the head, you have the barrel markings, and you have the extraction markings. The problem here for law enforcement is going to be that they only have extraction markings. And this science, uh, and I think the defense attorneys stated it pretty well, this is not this is not an exact science. That this these signatures, it's really based on who is testing the information. So it's not exact fingerprint science where it's like, oh, well, we have his fingerprint on the bullet. No, we have markings from the gun onto the bullet that are very similar. Once they go to court, prosecution is going to have their experts to argue their points, stating why it does match. And then the defense will find experts that say it doesn't match. So it's very, it's a little bit of a confusing situation, especially for those that are not very familiar with guns. But as I understand it, <laughs> this is how I am, Captain. I'm one of these guys that I I own firearms. I do not know much about guns in general. I know not very much about the, uh, I don't know a whole lot about the guns that I own. So I'm not a gun expert just because I own them, but it's a lot like other things that I own inside my home. I, I have TVs. I'm not a TV expert. Uh, mm-hmm. We all know that I went to school for computers. So, well, you have a great guitar collection and I have a great guitar collection and I can, I can probably fumble my way through about three songs and I've mm-hmm. owned these guitars for way too long to not know more songs than that. So, but the, the very general thought here is that if you if you rack the gun that it will extract the bullet and then it leaves marks before to to push the bullet out of the gun what probably happened in this scenario is that he either racked the gun or in the during the commission of some kind of fight or scuffle the gun got racked and the the bullet was extracted there's a chance that he may not have known that that bullet came out of his gun that day. It wouldn't be that hard to find the bullet. So this is a mistake. But in cases like this, you need to have the murderer make mistakes. So this was a mistake. Now, I don't want to go down a crazy conspiracy rabbit hole theory But there's been a lot of talk early on in the investigation that maybe they're not releasing certain audio clips because maybe this person posed as law enforcement 
and I keep seeing that being brought up online. One of the reasons that's being brought back up online is because a 40 caliber is probably the most popular caliber that's carried by law enforcement. Now, I ask multiple gun experts, as I am not one of them, how common is a 40 caliber gun? And they'd say, well, it's probably one of the most popular handhelds. But if you look at popularity of bullets, it's not even in the top five. You normally have a 35, a 9 millimeter, a 22, a 12-gauge shotgun. So it's not of the most popular ammos out there, types of ammos out there, but it is one of the most popular handhelds. But where conspiracy theorists will go wild on this is that the 40 caliber is probably the most popular when it comes to law enforcement. That may be. I'm going to have to disagree there. I, I actually think that a 40 caliber handgun would be an uncommon police used weapon but uh it, it but I, again all that stuff varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction from agency to agency they all have their own protocols they all have their own standards that they've created throughout the years my general understanding of law enforcement and the uh the guns that they typically carry the nine millimeter is a very common service revolver or sorry service weapon and you might see a 40, 45 with being carried by detectives, mm -hmm. a 40 caliber gun. So 40 caliber handgun, I, while I wouldn't say that it's uncommon, I would also 100% agree with you about the bullet because the bullet is a little, a 40 caliber bullet is a little more uncommon just for the fact that they are more expensive ammunition. And so people tend to buy guns that, that have cheaper, um, ammunition and, and the 40 caliber is more expensive. Well, I should have stated that because I'm not an expert on this, I, I did want to reach out to people. So I was able to talk to two gun experts that also, uh, train and do training with law enforcement as well. And both of them said that the 40 caliber is one one of the most popular, but as far as law enforcement goes, but not as popular in the normal public's view. The other highlight here is that the probable cause affidavit discusses a vehicle. And this again, remember, we go back in time and we remember Doug Carter telling the public, hey, we are looking for the owner of a vehicle that was parked at the old CPS building. This vehicle is mentioned during the affidavit, and they're also linking Richard Allen to this vehicle that they are discussing in the affidavit as being parked, his vehicle being parked at the CPS building. couple of things, though, here that, that I'm seeing online, and it's kind of regurgitated time and time again that I want to address that they go, oh, my God, this guy, he, he says he was at the, the trails that day, and he looks exactly like bridge guy. He's wearing the same clothing as bridge guy. I get it. But I also want to point out that we've said that not you and I in particular, but we, the public as a whole have said that seven or eight times about other individuals leading up to this arrest. Well, one of the things that we stated, and it's not like that were some, uh, geniuses by any means, 
But what we've seen by covering hundreds and hundreds of cases that a lot of times when there is an eyewitness that even comes forward, and we know Richard Allen came forward to law enforcement and says, look, I was there. I was there between these times. This is a detailed um, description of what I was wearing. Now, to me, if I'm law enforcement and I see, okay, here's a guy that matches somewhat the build. He's telling us he was there. He describes bridge guy's clothing to a T. I'm going to be interviewing that guy early and often. But the problem here and what we stated a long time ago, and we've covered this case multiple episodes, so I couldn't tell you what number of episode it was that we stated this, but we've stated time and time again in murder cases, you have to look at the eyewitnesses because We've seen it over and over where the eyewitness gets involved, lets law enforcement know that they were there just in case somebody saw them, and now they become an eyewitness and not a person of interest. The problem, and I will state it again like we stated before, the problem I think with this case was early on we had a large number of agencies involved, multiple agencies with multiple agents doing these interviews. And I think that hindered the case, maybe not so much for the search of the girls, but it hindered the case in interviewing witnesses. Well, and that in itself, I mean, we know of at least four agencies that were directly involved since day one. And we know that officers and agents throughout the state of Indiana were involved since early on in this case. And you're absolutely right, Captain. You you do have to employ all of the resources that you have. And in some cases, your resources are that you have an army of people. And so, you, yes, you do need to use them, especially with a case of this magnitude and a case that has this many tips coming in and possible witnesses, people possible having been to the trails that day, the day before, the day after, people, 300 people involved in the search for these girls. So you have a lot of people to question and interview. You have a lot going on, but yes, you can you're exactly right and spot on in your thoughts. It can cause a, a, a bit of chaos in your investigation and it can cause easily cause disorganization in your investigation. Well, and instead of throwing Doug Carter and the ISP and everybody under the bus, what we have to remember and what they've said multiple times, which was so confusing at the time to me, but is so clear now as he said, that once we have this individual and once we're able to look at this individual in the face, we're going to have to start the investigation all over again. And I think he was making those statements because they knew probably after the first year, we had too many cooks in the kitchen and we need to reorganize the information that we have. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Scramble through our world-class golf courses or shop your way through the square. Be one with nature as you hike or bike through our parks and trails or hunker down at one of our breweries. And when it's time to eat, be sure to bite into our eclectic food scene. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace.
Are you sick of dealing with psoriasis and an itchy scalp? Sick of scratching your head trying to figure out how to fix it? Check out Ocean Soothe, a natural solution that relieves psoriasis and problematic skin and scalp conditions. Sourced in Australia and manufactured in the USA, Ocean Soothe products deliver relief to the areas where you need it most. They offer a head-to-toe solution so you don't need to put together a whole cocktail of products to treat your skin. The Ocean Soothe Gel and Lotion are recognized by the National Psoriasis Foundation to relieve psoriasis and can be used across your whole body. They're naturally made, so you shouldn't experience any side effects. And they're odorless, so you don't get that funny medicine-y smell. For optimal psoriasis relief, start with Ocean Soothe Gel during the day, followed by Ocean Soothe Lotion at night. And if you want on-the-go relief for dandruff or dry, itchy scalp, the Ocean Soothe Scalp Serum is all you need. I've got these wonderful products right here in front of me, and some of the items that I love the most about Ocean Soothe is that they're made of natural products. Look at this, right on the side of the box, pure magnesium, cucumber extract, aloe vera. Those are all good, healthy things to be putting on your skin, and it's going to help you relieve your psoriasis. Abundant Natural Health's Ocean Soothe products are available at CVS Health Hub stores. Head over and shop today. He is innocent. He has told us that uh, very emotionally. He has thanked us for our help. Uh, and we are anxious uh, for the public to read this. We're anxious for this thing to get going. And, um, uh, you know, we'll see. And when you guys read the PCA, presuming that the judge grants our motion, you know, you will have to question, is this what happens after five years of an investigation? Is this what it is? We don't have any other evidence. We don't have any discovery. That's all we have. And we are not impressed. The two people being involved, uh, the, the conjecture from the prosecutor today was new information for us. I've been on this case, f folks, for five, what, six days. So I don't know a whole lot. We have not seen the evidence. And I, uh, you know, an, another person involved, I mean, that's, that's new news. So that's not reflected in the PCA? Uh, not the PCA that I read. Somebody might read something, a line about, you know, you're going to maybe about a vehicle or about a person or about a time frame, and it might ring a bell, uh, something that they hadn't thought of before. And when they read that, then, you know, they can contact us as, as lawyers. We're getting lots of information from lots of people across the country, especially locally. We don't know what is hoaxes. We don't know what's true. We don't know if it's a podcaster's, you know, uh, opportunity to get in the limelight. We don't know what's real, but we're going to we're going to uh, look at every uh, single uh, person that contacts us. We're going to contact them, everybody, and we're going to figure out if what they know is helpful. What, if anything, has your client, Richard Allen, said this has impacted him and or his family? Well, obviously, uh, this has impacted Richard and his family tremendously. I mean, his his wife is uh, just a wonderful person, and she loves her husband. They've been married for over 30 years. They were basically high school sweethearts. Uh, they love each other, and she fully supports him. But it is devastating. Uh, she's scared. She doesn't want to leave her house. She did leave her house. 
She uh, thankfully uh, is in a little bit better place than she was uh, a month ago, but it's, this is all new to them. Can you say anything about why uh, investigators are focused on your client? You guys will read the uh, probable cause affidavit and you may wonder why they are uh, focused on our client. We haven't asked you the fundamental question, and that is, your client's the wrong guy? Our client's the wrong guy. All right, we are back to the windows, to the walls. We got our computer expert. We got our beats expert. <laughs> Diving and dissecting crimes. Cheers to everybody. Cheers to you, Captain. Cheers to all the good people out there joining us again one more time on this case. And look, expert at what? I don't know. I'm, I'm a garage expert. I'll give you that. And I think I'll the captain that. Yeah. The captain is a garage expert as well. I'll vouch for him on that front. But the what is not in the affidavit is interesting just as much as what is in the affidavit. So you're exactly right. There's not anything with DNA in here. We got to keep in mind, too, this is simply to get Richard M. Allen in handcuffs, arrest him, detain him, hold him until there can be an actual trial. So Whatever's not in here does not mean that that's not part of the investigation. It's just what they, this is the information that they chose to include to give to the judge to sign off on that arrest. Now, I was able to speak with a retired detective about this case. And one of the things he said, and he kept reminding me over and over, there can be a mountain of evidence that they don't have to put in the PCA. Now, what he stated was, well, you have a smoking gun here because you have a bullet that came from his gun. They did test. They believe it came from Richard Allen's gun at the crime scene between the two victims. And that should be enough because, and, and not just because it was there, but when they asked him about it, there was no reasonable explanation. His explanation was simply, I don't know how that got there. So that would be enough for them to keep him to trial. And like you said, that is the point of the PCA. And I could be absolutely wrong on all of this information right here. And I want to point out why it would not be in this document, even if it were to be true. So DNA, they could have it. Uh, maybe they have it today, but didn't have it when they were requesting the arrest as the captain pointed out. That's Correct. a possibility. We also don't know what, tests have been conducted since the arrest of this man. Now we know that there was a, a search of his property in his home leading up to his arrest. And we'll get into that. That's in the PCA. So we don't know if they've come into DNA evidence since then. The other thing with how the victims were killed, I've, I don't believe that they were shot. We do know that a gun was used in the course of these crimes that were committed that day and the homicides. But the thing is, I feel like if you have a bullet that is found near your murder victim and you're using that to sign off on his arrest, what they're not saying in the PCA is that we recovered a bullet from one of the victims or both victims that matches a bullet that would have come from Allen's gun. Right. And we've looked at this case for since the beginning. 
And never once have we heard anything of an eyewitness being an ear witness saying that they heard gunshots. And then there's been some question, too, about the the search of Richard Allen's home. How did that come about? There's some debate out there. Did he consent? Was the search requested and he consented to the search? Or did they actually get a search warrant? I'm of the belief that they got a search warrant, and we'll get into that here in a minute. But if if that is the case, then that means there's another document out there that right. likely has a good deal of information in it that nobody has seen yet. Well, and that's the reason why I'm going to say that he possibly consented to this because that information, I believe prosecution would have to ask for that information to be sealed as well. And since there is no report on that on the news, I'm I'm just guessing that he consented. I mean, it states also that his wife is saying, hey, those those clothes that he wore the day of the murders, we have them. We own them. We, we we never threw them away. So they have those to test as well. And so not only there's no DNA evidence reported in the PCA, but hair samples, cloth fibers. There's so many other things, fingerprints that they could have, but they don't have to state in the PCA. Yeah. So let's get into the PCA rather than just citing some of the highlights. I want to give some direct information from that document. So I'm going to jump ahead to page two and on page two, the, this information is interesting. It says the video recovered from victim two's phone. So they're referring to our victims as victim one and two throughout this document, not by name. And it says the video recovered from victim two's phone shows victim one walking Southeast on the Monin high bridge while a male subject wearing a dark jacket and jeans walks behind her. As the male subject approaches victim one and two, one of the victims mentions gun. We had talked about that earlier. Near the end of the video, a male is seen and heard telling the girls guys down the hill. The girls then begin to proceed down the hill and the video ends. A still photograph taken from the video and the guys down the hill audio was released to the public to assist investigators in identifying the male. What's interesting here to me, Captain, is we keep having people online saying he looks exactly like Bridge Guy, looks exactly like the sketch. And again, I, with the reminder that we've said that about seven or eight other individuals, one thing that's really interesting to me is that I don't, when, when do we hear this guy's voice? Because the, the audio guys down the hill was such a big part of the public plea for information from law enforcement in this case. And I'm, I'm not seeing anybody or reviewing anything where people are, are doing voice comparisons between Richard Allen and the recorded audio. The lawyer that I was able to talk to was stating that as well Is this could be something that they could bring in an expert to say, look, it matches again. This is not an exact science, but to have an expert come in and say, we believe that Richard Allen's voice is the voice that you hear on the recording. I also think, too, we have video evidence, which you can then turn into still frames. I would assume with pretty low-level technology, you can do some measurements of the bridge, measurements of the planks, and get a better idea of how tall this individual is, because Richard Allen is very short. And I think 
if they did that those tests and they were able to ter- determine that Bridge Guy was over six foot tall, which I don't think he was, but let's just say that they could determine that, then obviously that would rule out Richard Allen. So that's something also that they could be doing. This is what the lawyer told me. This is another uh, little bit of technology that they could be doing to strengthen their case. But again, they don't have to put that in the PCA. Yes. And at one time they did give us a vague opinion on the height of bridge guy. And while Richard Allen is on the shorter side, he does fit in the range that they were suggesting to the public as what they believe the height could be of, of the individual seen on the bridge that day. The document on page two goes on to say the victim one and victim two's deaths were ruled a homicide. Clothes were found in Deer Creek belonging to the victims south of where their bodies were located. There was also a 40 caliber unspent round less than two feet away from victim two's body found between victim one and victim two's bodies. The round was unspent and had extraction marks on it. I'll jump ahead here to page three, Captain, and it says, Blank advised when she was leaving, she noted a vehicle was parked in an odd manner at the old Child Protective Services building. She said it was not odd for vehicles to be parked there, but she noticed it was odd because of the manner it was parked, backed in near the building. So a lot of people are stating that this would be a one way for an individual to get close to the trails to the bridge that day not conceal their vehicle so that no one would see it, but back it in so that you could at least conceal your license plate from any passerbys. Yeah. And what's also not in the PCA is there could be other eyewitnesses that saw an individual get into a vehicle. They might have the vehicle of the suspect down to one make and model. And so even though you have Richard Allen that says, I was there that day, we don't know if he lied to law enforcement about which vehicle of his he drove because they own several vehicles. So that would be pretty damning evidence, but again, not in the PCA. Yeah. And so in regards to the vehicle, what we have here is we have three different eyewitnesses that give varying descriptions of what vehicle they believe that they saw there that day. Now, none of them are saying this is the make and model and year and color of a vehicle that I saw there. They're, they're giving a quick description, right? Can you tell me a vehicle that you thought that it looked like? And some people could just get the name wrong on, on these here. But as the captain points out, Richard Allen did own him and his wife owned more than one vehicle. And that reminds me to circle back to something we discussed just a minute ago, the search warrant or the consent to search his home. The other thing, it does not have to be Richard Allen that gave consent to search his home. It could have been his wife, right? It could have been his wife that gave consent. Uh, but we'll circle back to that here in a minute again. So the vehicles were described as a PT cruiser. Another witness described it as a smart car. And I think that the third, I'm looking for it here. I don't, I can't find it right in front of me, but I think that the third witness may have described a small SUV. Does that sound correct? Regardless, let's skip the third one, but a PT cruiser and a smart car are the descriptions that I have right in front of me in my notes here. It states here in the document that 
Investigators discovered Richard Allen owned two vehicles in 2017. At that time, he owned a 2016 black Ford Focus and a 2006 gray Ford 500. Investigators observed a vehicle that resembled Allen's 2016 Ford Focus on the Hoosier Harv store. I can't be pronouncing that right. But uh, they, they have surveillance video from a store. And they have a vehicle that they believe resembles Richard Allen's 2016 Ford Focus seen traveling westbound on CR 300 North or County Road 300 North at 1.27 p.m. on the day that the girls were killed. So what's interesting to me here is I would not in all of my life describe a Ford Focus or a Ford 500 as a PT cruiser. To me, a PT cruiser is a rather distinct looking vehicle, but you know, we all have our opinions on these things. I would, I could see someone describing a Ford focus as a smart car. You know, when smart cars first came out, a lot of them were, were on the smaller side and a Ford focus is certainly a, a smaller, more compact vehicle. Then the document goes on to state a bunch of the different eyewitnesses of having seen people going, coming and going from the area around the time of the murders. We have, as the captain points out, Richard Allen, who's saying, yes, I was there that day. In fact, he says that he believes that he was there on the trails from about one thirty to three thirty that day. I don't know that we need to get into the rumors of how he got picked up. What do you think, Captain? Because there were about three or four different rumors coming out on how they went from this guy is a potential eyewitness. He was just somebody that happened to be there on the trail that day to, okay, this is now our murder suspect. Well, it could be as simply as them going back and reorganizing the information that they had from 2017. There's been all these statements made that the FBI made a clerical error, and that's why they never reinvestigated Richard but I think it, like we said, I, I think it goes back to a lot of too many cooks in the kitchen. Well, and the thing here, you know, the, the first rumor was that his arrest was directly related to the dive search that Kagan Klein may have provided information to law enforcement. And then they had the dive search and whatever was found or information learned during the course of that search is what put them hot on the trail of Richard Allen. That was a rumor. The other rumor was that he had some kind of conflict altercation with a neighbor that led to an arrest and him being forced to submit DNA. And that DNA came back with a hit in the murders. I'm, I lean to what you just said, captain. It looks to me like there's a very good chance that this is just putting fresh eyes, new eyes, maybe even better eyes, if you will, on the information that was collected back in 2017 and reviewing that information and then somebody putting a red flag on this and going, wait a second, there could be something here. And let's not forget it's spelled out in this PCA a little bit, right? We have this guy who says I was there. Yes, I was there. And what's completely bizarre to me is in his statements, he's saying not only was I there, but I also dressed like bridge guy. And we've, we've made the argument a hundred times on this show that in Indiana, even here in Ohio, there's a lot of men in, in their 30s and 40s that wear clothing very similar to this. This is not uncommon, very distinctive clothing. This is very common clothing. 
But we have Richard Allen saying, yes, I was there from 1.30 to 3.30. And two, let's double down on the idea that I was wearing clothing that day that looked like Bridge Guy. I might have even some of your witness statements of having seen potential Bridge Guy might have been people just seeing me. But what is what stands out and why I think that it's simply somebody going back with new, fresh, better eyes and an inquisitive mind leading them to Richard Allen is that if all these eyewitness statements are true and it was Richard Allen that they spotted there that day at one thirty ish up to two o'clock. And then again, around three thirty ish when he says that he's, he believes that he left the day for the day. Somebody's going, okay, well, he says he was there. Great. Maybe he's an honest dude. He was there and he has nothing to hide and he's just trying to help us. Great. Okay. We got eyewitnesses that if, if the person they saw was Richard Allen, then they're backing up his statements. He likely arrived around one 30 and likely left around three 30, but it's the inquisitive mind that goes, okay, well, why are there no eyewitnesses of Richard Allen during, during the middle of that time after two 13 PM? And that's when somebody says, oh, well, that's because he may have been in the woods with the girls killing them at the time that nobody's seen him. I'm normally not the smartest guy in the room. Heck, I'm not even the second smartest guy in this room. But if I'm law enforcement, every eyewitness is a person of interest until I can prove otherwise. And maybe that would be the reason that they went back and was looking into eyewitnesses and looking at them through the lens of being a person of interest that led to him. But, but I, but I also think that something had to happen because this moved very quickly. And I also don't think hold, hold that thought. I do think there's more evidence. I don't know if they have a mountain of evidence against him yet, but that doesn't mean that they won't by the time the trial is set. And the document goes on to state a narrative that was created by Richard M. Allen in 2017. This is from when he was interviewed in 2017. And some of the highlights of that narrative we've already covered, but I want to hit on a few things before we move past this. He's saying that he, he parked his vehicle near some, uh, he says the farm bureau building. And now police are saying, well, we think that either he doesn't know the names of the buildings or he purposely gave us an incorrect title uh, for the building to, to throw us off the trail. Now they're saying, you know, he, he very likely was the person that parked at the old at the old uh, CPS building and that he, uh, you know, is describing the building as a Farm Bureau building. Well, think about this. Let's say we have a list. We're law enforcement. We have a list of eyewitnesses. Now we start getting surveillance from different businesses in the area. And maybe that, maybe it's as simple as he says, oh, I was driving this vehicle when we know he was driving this other vehicle. Maybe it's, he says that I parked at this building and now we know for a fact that he parked at this other building. Once law enforcement sees that an eyewitness lied you have to make them a person of interest. And that could be as simple as it is. Go back through his statements, 
And now with this evidence, we can prove that this one statement is a lie and that could be enough to go, okay, my sniffer test is going off here. <laughs> we need to re-examine Richard Allen. Yes. And I believe I may have said February 14th earlier. I probably should have said February 13th instead, but going on here, some more information Blank advised that the male subject was wearing a blue colored jacket and blue jeans and was muddy and bloody. She further stated that it appeared that he had gotten into a fight. Okay. So this is one of the witnesses that likely saw bridge guy leaving the area that day. And we have a couple of different eyewitnesses that may have seen bridge guy leaving the area that day. They all give a little bit of a varying description of who or what they saw. But this one's really interesting because this one states a blue colored jacket, blue jeans. The person I saw was muddy and bloody yeah, and had appeared to have gotten into a fight. So then we fast forward in the document to October 13th, 2022, Richard Allen was interviewed again by investigators And it also states that Richard Allen's wife, Kathy Allen, also spoke to investigators and she confirmed during that discussion that Richard did have guns and knives at the residence. And she also stated that Richard still owns a blue Carhartt jacket. So now when you file, and this is why I believe that there was probably a search warrant and I would be interested to review that document if it ever comes out to the public, because the very next line in the PCA states On October 13th, 2022, investigators executed a search warrant of Richard Allen's residence, and then it gives his address. Among other items, officers located jackets, boots, knives, and firearms, including the Sig Sawyer Model P226 40 caliber pistol that is believed to have extracted the live round that was found between the two victims' bodies. So, What we have here, Captain, is if there was, in fact, a search warrant, as this PCA indicates that there was, now we have a situation where you have law enforcement going before a judge, and they're not asking for an arrest of Richard Allen at that time. That arrest would follow. But what they're asking for is, we need to search this guy's property, and here's what we're looking for. And you you know that that document probably states we're looking for this blue jacket who his wife says still exists. And we're looking for the gun that extracted that bullet that we found between the victims. Here we are. They likely found both of those items at his home. We know that they found the gun because the gun with the ballistics test, the tool markings test is what I believe 100% sealed the arrest of Richard Allen. I agree. I don't think we'll have enough time today to dive into this, but Richard Allen's attorneys did make statements on the PCA. And one of the things that they were trying to say to point to his innocence is, well, he, he hasn't changed his job. He hasn't changed his, where he lives. He, he, he didn't even get rid of these weapons. He didn't, he didn't uh, throw away these clothes. That that's not an argument on whether somebody's innocent or guilty. That's just a fact that he just didn't do those things. And there's plenty of killers that don't throw away the clothes they were wearing when they committed a murder or throw away the weapon that he used when they committed a murder. So to me, that was such a nothing burger 
where it's like, okay, well, congratulations. That's not an argument. Right. Exactly. The, the statement that he didn't get rid of any of these things does not, does not exclude him from being the killer, right? right? Criminals, as you pointed out, make mistakes. Criminals do dumb things. And thank I'm thankful that they do dumb things. And this may just be a big example of Richard Allen being a dumbass. And he didn't get rid of very incriminating evidence for whatever reason. Could be that that guns guns are expensive. Maybe he's like, eh, they're not they're never going to catch me. They I've spoke to police five years ago. They don't know their you know, their ass from a hole in the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't know what's going on. I have no reason to worry about losing these items or wanting to get rid of these items because they're expensive and I don't want to have to replace them. Or, you know, we talk about killers keeping souvenirs. It's not very hard to believe that maybe his murder weapon or a weapon that was used during the commission of these crimes is some type of souvenir, prided souvenir of his. Well, on top of that, why would you get rid of a gun if you didn't know a bullet came out of that gun at the crime scene? And because law enforcement never released that, just think if law enforcement would have released that early on, well, we found a bullet that wasn't shot at the crime scene. Then if Richard Allen is the killer, then he would obviously want to go, well, I need to get rid of that gun now. Yeah, so that's that's interesting, and I'm glad that you explored it in that manner because there's a couple things here. One, the portion of the video where the one of the girls says gun is never released to the public. He very likely did not know when the recording started. He was not, it doesn't, the way that it's described is, makes it sound like he's not directly in front of the girls when one of them says gun. Maybe he never heard one of them say that. He doesn't know when the recording started. He may not know if, if the gun was racked and that bullet comes out during some kind of fight with the, with the two girls and he's losing control of his two victims that he's corralled with this gun. One, he may not know that that bullet was, was there. So he does not know that he made that mistake. The other thing though, too, is let's say he racked the gun because if he's losing control of these girls, one thing that will that will quickly straighten out people and get people's attention very quickly is cocking that gun and making that sound. Right. That gets everyone's attention. We we discussed this when we talked about the audio and why there were difficulties with the audio. There were a lot of leaves on the ground that day. It's February in Indiana. There's a decent chance that even if he knows that he left the bullet there, he may have spent some time looking for it and could not find it. But regardless, it, you're you're spot on. I think that if police would have come out right away and said that there was a gun used in some form or fashion, you know, maybe maybe he's looking at this and going, "Okay, yeah, I brought a gun to the scene with me, but that's not what I used to kill the girls." And Maybe he has no idea that police had evidence that there was a gun at the scene that day. Correct. So he doesn't know any better to get rid of it. What is interesting too, when we talk about the gun and the bullet is that this is a, this is going to be a problem for Richard Allen. Once this thing finally gets to trial, 
a big problem he's going to have is that he is on record telling law enforcement, and this is what's stated in the PCA, Richard Allen stated he had not been on that property where the unspent round was found, that he did not know the property owner, and he had no explanation as to why a round cycled through his firearm would be at that location. Furthermore, he stated that he never allowed anyone to use or borrow his gun. So that's going to be a big problem for him because if they can, if their experts can convince a jury that that unspent live round came from Richard Allen's gun that they confiscated from his home, He's now telling you, I've never lent this gun to anyone ever at any time. And then he's also saying, yeah, I went to the trails often. He said he was, would regularly go to the trails. Oh, but I've never been on that piece of land. So he, he can't later say, well, his defense cannot say based off of this information and off of Richard Allen's own words that let us paint a picture of Richard Allen having, having been at the trails many times before we told you when we talked about Richard Allen's arrest on Halloween, that we were aware of a weapons permit that he obtained in June of 2009. That was very likely a concealed carry permit. And so if he's out at these trails often, it's not highly unlikely to believe that he might've been packing while he's, going to the trails regularly, but now he can't use the defense of, oh, I was there previously and that I must have dropped that bullet or that bullet came out of my gun at a date prior to when the girls were murdered. Now what we have is a guy that's admitted to being at the crime scene that day during the time that it's believed that they were killed, having gone there often but a bullet that came from his gun is found directly between the two murder victims on a piece of land. He says he's never been on two feet away, two feet away from one of the victims. Well, let's take a little bit of time to go through Richard Allen's defense team's rebuttal of the PCA. Yeah. The first thing that in their rebuttal is their interviews that they're giving after the hearing. And he's got two very good attorneys, from my understanding. That's what I've been told. The, the people that know of their work and their career are saying that these are two very good, very capable attorneys. Both of them were, from my recollection, on record, giving on-camera interviews stating that they saw nothing in this PCA that conclusively points to their client as being guilty. They're on record as saying that they believe their client is innocent and he believes he is innocent and he's told them that much. They've also said that there was nothing in this PCA that indicated to them that somebody else could be involved in this crime. I thought that was a little, uh, I, a couple things here. I thought the whole other person being involved was odd from both sides of the argument. One from the prosecution to me, it seems to like lessen your case a little bit against Richard Allen to publicly state that. And maybe they're just saying it like using that as additional ammunition for not having the PCA released, which, but at the same time, the, the prosecutor showed up to the hearing telling the judge, yeah, I brought a redacted version of the PCA 
with me today that if you were to release it, we would ask that you release this redacted version instead of the full document, which again, there's eyewitnesses names stated clearly in and throughout that document. And those people need to be protected for many, many reasons. Not, not that, that we're just going to have a court case coming up, but I also thought it odd on the defense to say, yeah, we don't know what the prosecution's talking about somebody else being involved. I think regardless of who you're representing, I think you want to keep that door open. Now, if you want to go hard and fast about it and and say, look, we don't know what they're talking about. It doesn't really matter because our client is innocent. So we don't, we don't know if this was committed by one or two or more people had some kind of involvement. It really doesn't matter because our client is innocent. That's one thing. But just to say that to, to not leave the door open a little bit seemed a little weird to me. But what we do have here, go ahead. Well, you have to follow that up with his final statement at that courthouse that day was he basically was also stating, hey, look, I've just been on this case for seven days. I don't know much about this case. So other people involved, I don't know exactly what they're talking about because he's basically telling you, I haven't had time to dive into this. And he, I think he even made the statement uh, of something that people in the media and, and podcasters and armchair detectives probably know more about the case than he did at that time. Last week, they released, they being his, Richard Allen's attorneys, released a, a statement, a press release statement stating that they do not want to try this case in the media and they intend to adhere to the Indiana rules of professional conduct that provide guidance to on pretrial publicity. And they do point out, look, the the police and prosecutor's office have conducted many press conferences over the five plus years of this investigation and even additional press conferences following the arrest of their client. So I think it's fair for them to have their give their two cents on everything. And they pretty much release a three-page document to the media that states in bullet point form, here's some reasons why, and here's some reasons that point toward Richard or Rick, as they refer to him throughout this document, as being innocent. And one we we should point out he's never been arrested or accused of any crime in his entire life, let alone a crime of this magnitude up, up until this point, obviously. He does state that he spoke with police on several occasions after the murders, uh, that he volunteered information, that he came forward. Again, that's not terribly uncommon. In fact, we said on True Crime Garage that this whole, hey, we want to know the owner or the driver of the vehicle parked at the CPS building. We said it years ago, that might just be a ploy. That just might be some kind of con job to get someone to come forward to explain away why their vehicle would have been seen there that day. We've seen and reviewed many cases in the past where there's a fictitious vehicle that's made up by police to try to get the perp to come forward. And now we got a whole nother name on our list of people that admit to being in that general area that day on the murders. Well, turns out that might've been Rick Allen's vehicle. And then him coming forward to police and saying that he was there that day again, does not make him, it doesn't point towards innocence. In my opinion, it 
it, it points to simply exactly what he's saying. He was there that day. That's not a disputable fact. It's it's something that is fact. He was there that day. Puts him on the suspect list, in my opinion. And a lot of times these guys will come forward and they'll say, yes, I was there that day because they know that they were likely seen by somebody else and they're trying to get ahead of it. They're trying to get ahead of it. So you don't have to ask me, well, why were you there that day? And you said you weren't there that day. To me, any time that you put yourself at the crime scene, which that whole crime scene is the park. And so by him coming forward, that doesn't point to any innocence at all. That points to the probability that points to the possibility that he could be the killer. Again, I agree with you. You then take that person and they're not an eyewitness. You put them on a person of interest list. Well, and then they're trying to call this bullet. They're, they're calling it a single magic bullet. So they're trying to discredit the bullet information. And again, yes, is it exact science? It sounds like there's an argument that it's not exact science, but to call it a magic bullet is really an attempt to publicly discredit the information that led to your client's arrest. And I don't have a problem with them making a statement because the PCA was then was the PCA was released to the public, but then a judge issued a gag order on the attorneys. And so I think the sad thing for me in this case is when they made an arrest, I started thinking, well, this is um, the beginning of the end, but the more I've talked to experts, law, lawyers, um, defense attorneys, other individuals, uh, detectives, and law enforcement, this is the beginning of the beginning. Yeah, and I think you and everybody are correct in that. And we can see that in the information that, that we know about this case, we know there's going to be a bond hearing. I believe that's scheduled for February of next year. So that is in the foreseeable future, but there also will, would be a probable cause hearing at some point. There's going to be a preliminary hearing at some point. All of those three things could take place all at the same time. The other thing, though, is we know that the defense has requested a change of venue. And in fact, they are stating that they would like for the venue to be 150 miles away from Delphi, Carroll County area. But we know that the trial needs to stay in the state of Indiana. And so that makes it a little difficult. There's not a whole lot of places that they could end up having this trial if they were to get their request granted that it's at least 150 miles away from Delphi because he can't get a fair trial in Carroll County. That doesn't have to be granted. That's something that a, a judge will take under consideration into consideration and make a determination on at a later date. There's, there's a chance that we don't see Richard Allen actually in an actual trial until August, I would say maybe August of next year would be the earliest that I would ex anticipate a trial. This thing could also be 2024 before he's in an actual trial. It might be up to 18 months is, is some of the uh, thoughts that I've had on this ever since his arrest that we could, we could be waiting 18 months to get this. And I'm glad that you brought up the gag order for several reasons. It, it's just an, that's what this case is going to be. That's what it was from day one. And that's appears that it's going to be that going forward. And, you know, Doug Carter said 
You want to know, addressing Bridge Guy, addressing the killer, you want to know what we know. Well, one day you will. But that also pertains to the public and to some members of the media as well. And that one day you will might not be until day four, five, six, ten of an actual trial that could be anywhere from eight months to 18 months away. The gag order, this is, this is one thing, it's a side note here, Captain, but it's one thing that's always kind of cracked me up that, you know, we have this, this justice system. Well, and the listeners know how much you like to laugh. Well, and they call it a gag order. It's like you could have come up with any other term than gag order sounds to me like we got some heaving, someone heaving in the corner over there, right? It, <laughs> right. Like an order of silence Ugh. would be probably more appropriate right. than gag orders. Like, <laughs> so one thing that I do want to thank all of our listeners we, I've received a mountain of emails thanking us for our continued coverage on the Delphi case. We first covered this case in May of 2017 in episodes 110 and 111. We were one of the first podcasts to cover it. That's back when there was very little information and we had two episodes full of speculation, full of rumors. And we went on to cover it many times since then. You know that we have now done, previous to today, Captain, we have done 17. We've dedicated 17 episodes, about 17 hours of coverage, plus today, devoted to this case. And in, back in May of 2017, when we first covered it, we said that we were going to see this thing through to the end. And now here we sit, 2000, over 2,000 and roughly 20 days later. And now we have a very big and very bright light at the end of the tunnel. Now we don't know. We still don't know where the end of the tunnel is, how long it's going to take us to get there. But we, for, for the very first time in five and a half years, starting in mid October, it looks like there's a very big and bright light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm excited to see what comes of this going forward. And I said, we covered it 17 times on true crime garage. We've also discussed this case countless times on our other show off the record, which is available on stitcher premium. If anybody wants to go and listen to, to those shows. And then if you will allow me to do this, captain, I'm going to break one of my own rules. One of the garage rules that we have, we have a very short list of rules here in the garage. And this one was implemented by me but I'm going to go ahead and break one of my own rules, one of our agreed upon garage rules. And when we first started this flying ship, we said that one thing that we, that we were going to steer away from steer clear of was to get in a habit of defending ourselves. We have put ourselves into a position where we throw out speculation, where we examine a case, we bring it into the garage, we take it apart, we put it back together, see if, if everything works and then we give our opinions on these cases. Sometimes we're right. Sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes the case remains unsolved and we just don't know what is right and what is wrong until the cases are solved. But I'm going to break my own rule here and defend ourselves here for a moment, because with all the gratitude that came from the listeners of, we thank you for your continued coverage. There also came a little bit of pushback and some of that pushback was, well, guys, don't you think you owe somebody an apology now? And here's the thing. 
I want to be clear in this, in this statement. First of all, I will be giving zero apologies in this case for a mountain of reasons, but one of them will be when all these suspects, and I, I'm using air quotes here, all these people that were pushed forward by the media and by locals of this person was arrested for this serious infraction or this crime or this murder or attempted murder or molestation. He looks just like bridge guy, sounds just like bridge bridge guy. If it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, then it, then it definitely is a duck. Us in the garage, we're telling everyone, hold on, let's pump the brakes a little bit here on this. Let's not string this guy up just yet. Let's pump the brakes a little bit here. In one of our coverages, we discussed an individual that we called we labeled this individual as DP. DP was a person that has told police that he was at the trails that day, on the day that the girls were killed. And then later his story changed. We at no time, and I know I can say 100% as fact, yours truly at no time said that DP is a suspect in this case. What we pointed out was that an individual that puts themselves at a crime scene, be it Delphi, be it John Benet Ramsey, be it Lane Bryant shootings, any case that you can think of out there, unsolved case that you can think of, any person that puts themselves at a crime scene on the day of the crime should be considered a suspect and should be looked at as a person of interest until you can clear them of such. Now, what we thought was a misstep in the investigation or appeared to be a possible misstep was that when this individual changed their story, we, from everything we could see, it looked like they were still being considered a witness, a potential witness instead of a potential person of interest. And it was of our opinion to move that individual back to the person of interest list rather than just an eyewitness. No apology will be made. Because every part of our opinion was, is true and it holds true to this day. And it holds true to every case going forward that we we review. We will still hold that opinion on other cases, but keep in mind what happened here in Delphi. Rick Allen told police that he was there that day. He was at the trails on the day that the girls were killed. And then later they, they, They swallowed that pill early on, but later at some point, something changed in the investigation that led them back to Richard Allen. And he switched from being a potential eyewitness to a potential person of interest. So strong that it led to his arrest. And just to double down on that, like we said, if we were law enforcement, we would take every eyewitness and instead of looking at them as eyewitness, we'd look at them as a person of interest until we could prove otherwise. And if they would have done that in 2017, they would have made an arrest in 2017 in the Delphi case. We want to thank all of our listeners for sticking with us and listening to all of these episodes that we have devoted to this case. If you want to go back and listen to those prior episodes, I'll include those in today's show notes. So you can review them there and decide if you want to go back and listen to them again or listen to them for the first time. We also want to give a big kudos, a big attaboy to Doug Carter and his team at the Indiana State Police. 
the sheriff's department in Carroll County, uh, the Delphi police, everybody that had their hands involved in getting an arrest finally in this case, this, as the captain pointed out, is either the beginning of the end or maybe just the beginning of the beginning. But regardless, it's a step in the right direction. We've been hoping and praying and at times even crying for justice for these two poor little girls that were victimized by some kind of monster there that day on the trails. And it looks like finally we might be getting to a good place here in seeking justice and getting justice for Libby and Abby. And we just want to commend everyone for any involvement at all, whether it just being a listener, whether it just being somebody that told somebody else about the case, kept the case alive in the media and all the way up to the law enforcement officers, the the good women and men of Indiana state law enforcement that kept at it with this case. Cheers to everyone. Police didn't contact Allen after Abby and Libby disappeared. Instead, Allen voluntarily talked with investigators about being on the trail that day. Then, Allen didn't hear from police again for more than five years until about a month ago. They say Allen did not get rid of his car, his guns, or his clothing. He didn't move and just continued to live his normal life. They attacked the so-called unspent bullet, evidence outlined in court documents released this week. They criticized ballistics and its use in court cases, calling it anything but a science. And they point out prosecutors have mentioned there may be another person involved in this case, but there's no mention of other suspects in the court documents. Now, before the probable cause affidavit was released, the Carroll County prosecutor released a statement reassuring the public he has a very solid case. It went on to say, we strongly believe the evidence shows Richard Allen was involved in the murder of Libby and Abby. I want to thank everybody for joining us here in the garage. You want to help out the show, go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. We have another special show tomorrow. So join us back here in the garage. Same bat time, same bat channel. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Live life at your pace. Click the banner or go to visitwilliamsburg.com to discover how. Because here in Williamsburg, life moves at one pace, yours. Visit a live archaeological dig site on the very grounds where America began. Or walk the fields where our country was won. Live like a colonial by day or track 18th century ghosts by night. For all the history to be found here, there's plenty more to make for yourself. It's all waiting for you in Williamsburg. Book your trip today and live life at your pace.